All right. Is this on? Check. One. Hey, everybody. Okay. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to church tonight. We're going to begin our time of worship by singing to our maker, to our God, because he's worthy of all of our praise. Uh, would you stand with me? Um, this morning I read in uh, Hebrews chapter 12. I was reading at the end of the chapter, Hebrews 12, and it said, um, paraphrasing, that basically if you think of a gold miner with a, a sifter and sifting through gold and waiting for those uh, pieces of gold to come through that are worth something. You know what I'm talking about? Am I making sense? Uh, it was saying that God is going to come and he's going to shake the foundations of heaven and earth and all that's going to remain is the kingdom of God because we are, have a kingdom that cannot be shaken in our Lord Jesus Christ. So I've been thinking about that all day long, like sifting through uh, all this gold that the world may offer us, but it's not going. it's all going to fade away because the kingdom of God is what's going to last. And so we're going to sing about the rock of our salvation in Christ alone. Um, on Christ, the solid rock we stand. On uh, There's no other uh, ground but sinking sand. Okay? So we're going to sing. Let's sing out. In Christ alone. In Christ alone. My hope is found, He is my life, my strength, my song, this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I'll stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, the fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness. Scorned by the ones he came to save Till on that cross as Jesus died The wrath of God was satisfied For every sin on him was laid Here in the death of Christ I'll live There in the ground his body lay, the light of the world by darkness slain, but then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me. For I am His, and He is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. On Christ, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. On Christ, 
On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. No guilt in life, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell and no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand on Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground is sinking sand all other ground is sinking sand let's sing that one more time on Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground is sinking sand all other ground is sinking sands amen sing when i survey when i survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my From his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Compose so rich a crown of the wonderful cross. Oh, the wonderful cross bids me come and die and find that I may truly live and know. Oh, the wonderful cross, oh, the wonderful cross, all who gather here by grace draw near and bless your name. Were the whole realm of nature 
Jesus, we come before you right now and we thank you for your wonderful cross. The weapon that was used for death was actually our victory. So God, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your love. Uh, We praise you tonight. We love you. We worship you. And speak to us through your word tonight. Uh, We need to hear from you. Amen. If you want to get your Bible out, we will be in Matthew chapter 16 here in just a little bit. We will get to, man, unbelievable. There we go. I shouldn't pull up on that. That thing's going to come straight off, so uh, pull that off. I heard uh, about the story of a pastor who had a big glass pulpit like that on stage and got really excited and pulled the top right off of it. So uh, I don't think I could do that one to uh, our big glass one, but that one came right off for sure. So, well, as we uh, come to a time of prayer tonight, continue to remember our team in the Middle East. They are wrapping up their time there and headed back. They should be back Sunday, and then Jim will be back early next week. So continue to pray, uh, pray for them. To be honest, I haven't heard a ton of updates uh, from, from the team. Our next-door neighbor is one of the guys who's on, on the trip, and so his wife was telling us that one of the first days of doing the, the VBS for the missionary kids, he had to break up a fist fight between a couple of two-year-olds. So, so missionary kids act like pastor's kids, I guess, you know. And so the, ver- the next day... He got there, and apparently he just ran for this little baby and held the little baby all day. So uh, you can either do two-year-olds or you can do, uh, do little babies. So apparently Jared went for the little baby, but we'll have to, we'll have to find out all, all about what, what they've been doing. So continue to pray for them. Um, pray for Rich Elliston. Rich is having a heart procedure tomorrow morning, so we want to pray for, pray for Rich and Phyllis. And then Carl told me that, Jack and Phyllis Poe, they're not able to be here tonight because neither one of them is feeling, feeling very well. So they had reached out to Carl and just asked that we 
we'd be praying for pray for Jack and Phyllis uh, tonight. There are there other things uh, going on in your Sunday school classes or areas we can be praying for? Yes, for she. Are they doing dialysis or probably not? The uh, so Jaffa is a gentleman that Rashid has gotten to know, and he's come to faith in Christ what within the about two months ago. Yeah, and so he's in very bad health, very near the end of his life. But Rashid continues to uh, to minister to him and to his family, and so. Uh, pray, pray for him uh, that he would continue to trust the Lord during this time. And okay. Oh wow! So for her to be able to come in, do you know his wife? Is she a believer or? Yes, yeah, she is. But he had not been. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. A minister? Oh. Oh, wow. Huh. Yeah. What else? Uh, anything going on in your area? Remember uh, Operation Christmas Child boxes? If you haven't filled those to bring those, bring your Operation Christmas Child boxes uh, on Sunday. Also, Sunday... We have our Fall Fest at 4 o'clock. We do the Trunk or Treat out front. So you'll get an email from me tomorrow reminding you to invite someone. This is a great opportunity to invite someone to be a part of something at, at church. And more than anything, it can just open up religious conversations with people in a way that it, sometimes those conversations are hard to start. And this can be a conversation starter with people in your neighborhood. So let people know, invite people to come to Fall Fest. Last I checked, the weather looked pretty good for Sunday, so we're hanging in there. Uh, hopefully it'll, it'll hold together for us on Sunday, and we'll have, a, have good weather. We'll, fi- we'll find out. Um, usually when I predict weather for the church, it doesn't go well, so uh, we'll have to wait and see, see what happens. But if you do not have an area to serve on Sunday afternoon, if, you're, if your Sunday school class already has everything covered, Courtney mentioned this afternoon that she still needs some folks to stand at the inflatables and help out. So if you can stand at an inflatable, uh, so circling back to the first story I told tonight, if you're good at breaking up fights between two-year-olds, this would be the perfect place uh, for you you to serve. Just to stand at the inflatable and, and control the chaos. Or at least keep the, let the chaos get back to their parents. That's the main thing. Just uh, control whoever's in line and send them back to their parents. But that's the, uh, we do need some help at the inflatables. Uh, so if you can do that, if you can get here around 4 o'clock and help out with that, that would, be, that would be great. And just mingle with people as well. It's a great chance to meet people, and it's, it's a fun, fun event. So 4 o'clock on Sunday, I want you to remember that. All right, I'm going to, I want to lead us in a, in a time of prayer, and then after I do that, we're going to watch the Bible Project video. We send out those Route 66 uh, Bible reading emails each week. I'm going to show the video, if you didn't see it, the, the first half of Matthew, 
the Bible Project video because it's going to lead into to what we're talking about tonight. And it's a good reminder of where we've been at Matthew and that we can kind of continue forward. So it's only a few minutes long. We'll watch this video and then we'll get into the Bible study. But let's, let's pray together and then we'll do that. Father, thank you for the gift of being able to gather together, even with Fashid mentioning uh, Jaffa and, and his health. And God, we praise you that in recent days, near the end of his life, that he has come to faith in Christ. God, I pray that his daughter will be able to come in time to spend, spend time with him. And, and even being reminded of that story of how precious life is, and we never want to take for granted what it means to together together tonight God I know uh, Jack and Phyllis would love to be here God we pray uh, for Rich and Phyllis uh, for Rich as he gets ready for surgery tomorrow morning God we pray for them God we don't want to take lightly what it means to gather as the church and thank you for the kids that are on campus tonight thank you for those who are involved with music ministry and all the different things that are happening God we know all of that is a gift from you and we pray that each day that we are worshiping you and all that we do we thank you for the team that's in the Middle East and how they're caring for these missionary kids and how they're able to minister and even the, the connections you've brought together in the last couple of weeks that are going to impact our church and impact the kingdom and the days ahead. God, we know that all of that is your hand at work and we, we thank you for that and we, we are humbled before you uh, because of that. God, thank you for what Jordan prayed earlier that our hearts would be open to your word. God, I pray that tonight as we look at these verses and we think about the Gospel of Matthew and we think about what it is to respond to you in humility and in worship and in faith, God, build our faith. We come in here as those who believe in you, as those who confess Jesus, but God, I pray that as we hear your word, as we think about this, as we worship together, as we pray, God, that you would strengthen us, strengthen us for what you have this week, God, give us conversations where we can invite families in our neighborhood to come to the Fall Fest. Give us conversations with people who are hurting that we can provide hope, not in ourselves, but in Christ. And so, God, uh, open our eyes to, to those opportunities all around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, watch this video, first half of Matthew. It'll get us caught up, and, and it's a good example of what we send out in those emails, and then we'll do Bible study. The Gospel according to Matthew. It's one of the earliest official accounts about Jesus of Nazareth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. The book itself is anonymous, but the earliest reliable tradition links it to Matthew the tax collector, who was one of the 12 apostles that Jesus appointed, and he actually appears within the book itself. For about 30 to 40 years, the apostles orally taught and passed on their eyewitness accounts about Jesus, along with his teachings that they had all memorized. And Matthew has then collected and arranged all these into this amazing tapestry and designed the book to highlight certain themes about Jesus. In this video, we're just going to cover the first half of the book. Specifically, Matthew wants to show how Jesus is the continuation and fulfillment of the whole biblical story about God and Israel. That Jesus is the Messiah from the line of David, that he is a new authoritative teacher like Moses, and not only that, Jesus is God with us, or in Hebrew, Emmanuel. 
And Matthew's designed this book with an introduction and then a conclusion, and these act like a frame around five clear sections right here in the center, each of which concludes with a long block of Jesus' teaching. Now this design is very intentional and it's amazing. Just watch how this works. Chapters 1 through 3, they set the stage by attaching Jesus' story right onto the storyline of the Old Testament scriptures. So Matthew opens with a genealogy about Jesus that highlights how he is from the messianic line of the son of David, and he's a son of Abraham. That means he's going to bring God's blessing to all of the nations. After that, we get the famous story about Jesus' birth and how all of the events fulfilled the Old Testament prophetic promises that the nations would come and honor the Messiah, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, but even more than that, Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit, his name Emmanuel, all these work together to show that Jesus is no mere human. He is God with us. God become human. So you can see two of Matthew's key themes right here in the introduction. He's from the line of David. He's Emmanuel. But Matthew also wants to show how Jesus is a new Moses. So like Moses, Jesus came up out of Egypt he passed through the waters of baptism, and he entered into the wilderness for 40 days. And then Jesus goes up onto a mountain to deliver his new teaching. So through all of this, Matthew is claiming that Jesus is the promised greater than Moses figure who's going to deliver Israel from slavery. He's going to give them new divine teaching. He's going to save them from their sins and bring about a new covenant relationship between God and his people. This Moses and Jesus parallel also explains why Matthew has structured the center of the book the way that he did. These five main parts highlight Jesus as a teacher, and he's created a parallel. Jesus as a teacher parallels the five books of Moses. Jesus is the new authoritative covenant teacher who's going to fulfill the storyline of the Torah. Now in the first section, chapters 4 to 7, Jesus steps onto the scene announcing the arrival of God's kingdom. And this is really key. The kingdom is in essence about God's rescue operation for his whole world. And it's taking place through King Jesus. Jesus has come to confront evil, especially spiritual evil, and its whole legacy of demon oppression and disease and death. Jesus has come to restore God's rule and reign over the whole world by creating a new family of people who will follow him, obey his teachings, and live under his rule. So, after Jesus begins healing people and forming a movement, a community, he takes his followers out to a mountain or a hillside, and he delivers his first big block of teaching, traditionally called the Sermon on the Mount. And here Jesus explores what it looks like to follow him and live in God's kingdom. And it's an upside-down kingdom where there are no privileged members. So the poor, the nobodies, the wealthy, the religious, everybody is invited and is called to turn, to repent, and to follow Jesus and join his family. Jesus says that he's not here to set aside the commands of the Torah or the Old Testament. Rather, he's here to fulfill all of that through his life, through his teachings. He's here to transform the hearts of his people so that they can truly love God and love their neighbor, including their enemy. After concluding his great teaching on the kingdom, the next section shows Jesus bringing the kingdom into reality in the day-to-day -day lives of people. So Matthew's arranged here nine stories about Jesus bringing the power of God's kingdom into the lives of hurting, broken people. There are three groups of three stories, and they're all about people who are sick, or have broken bodies, or they're in danger, and Jesus heals or saves them by these acts of grace and power. 
And then right in between these triads, we find two parallel stories about Jesus' call that people should follow him. Matthew's making a point here. One can only experience the power of Jesus' grace by following him and becoming his disciple. Now, after Matthew has shown the power of the kingdom through Jesus, Jesus then extends his reach by sending out the 12 disciples who are going to go do what he's been doing. And this leads to the second large block of teaching, chapter 10. And here, Jesus teaches his disciples how to announce the kingdom and what to expect once they do. Many among Israel are accepting Jesus and his offer of the kingdom, but Israel's leaders, they aren't. They stand to lose a lot if they repent and become disciples of Jesus. And so Jesus knows they're going to reject him and persecute his followers, which is exactly what happens. In the next section, chapters 11 through 13, Matthew has collected a group of stories about how people are responding to Jesus and his message. And it's a mixed bag. So some stories are positive. People love Jesus and they think he's the Messiah. Others are more neutral, like John the Baptist, or even the members of Jesus' own family. And they make it clear that Jesus is not what they expected. And then you have Israel's leaders. They're entirely negative. You have the Pharisees and the Bible scholars. They all reject Jesus together. They think he's a false teacher. He's leading the people astray. They think he's blasphemous and these exalted claims he's making about himself. But Jesus isn't surprised or thrown by all these diverse responses. In fact, he focuses on it in the third block of teaching, chapter 13. Here, Matthew's collected together a bunch of Jesus' parables about the kingdom, like about a farmer throwing seed on four types of soil, or about a mustard seed, or a pearl, or buried treasure. These parables are like a commentary on the stories that you've just read in chapters 11 and 12. Some people are accepting Jesus with enthusiasm. Others are rejecting him. But God's kingdom is of ultimate value and it will not stop spreading despite all of these obstacles. So that's the first half of the gospel according to Matthew. Now here's a few more things to look for as you read through these chapters. Matthew's presenting Jesus, remember, as the continuation and fulfillment of the Old Testament storyline. So, look for how he weaves in quotations from the Old Testament scriptures. And what you'll find is that they're placed at strategic points in the story, explaining more about Jesus and his identity. So stop. Take time to go look up these references and read them in their Old Testament context. And most often you'll discover really cool, interesting connections. Lastly, Pay attention to the types of people who accept Jesus and follow him. And you'll see that it's most often people who are unimportant, they're nobodies, or they're irreligious. And these are the people who are transformed by their trust or faith in Jesus and follow him. And it's the religious and the prideful who are offended by him. So how is this tension between Jesus and Israel's leaders going to play itself out? That's what the second half of Matthew is all about. All right, those videos are just so well done. I, I, I'm continually amazed uh, at both the artwork and, and then just the good solid uh, application. That company, the Bible Project guys that do that, they make a coffee table book that has those drawings in there and then they have the wording that they use when they speak over the, the images alongside that and so for our home we bought the coffee table book because you just have this great overview of all the uh all the books there in in the bible so 
What that does is it sets up for us what's going on in the book of Matthew, that you have this conflict that, that is building between Jesus and the religious leaders, which takes us to Matthew chapter 16, where, where we are tonight. And we're going to talk about that conflict and what we can learn and, and how that speaks to, to our lives. So, Matthew chapter 16, verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, if you think, that sounds vaguely familiar, well, go back to chapter 12 just for a minute. So if you go back to Matthew chapter 12, what does it look like for Jesus to be asked about a sign from heaven? So you go back to Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So that was Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 and 39. You go back to chapter 16, the Pharisees and Sadducees have come up to him, and they've sought to test him, looking for a sign from heaven. Remember, Matthew loves doubles. Matthew loves to tell these stories twice, not because he's making up a second story, but because he likes to show emphasis. He's making a point when he, when he uses these doubles in his teaching. Now here's the sign. He answers them in verse 2 of chapter 16. When it is evening... You say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. How many of you have been around people who claim they could tell the weather based on what the sky looked like in the, uh, in the morning or, or the evening? How many of you claim to tell the weather based on the pain in your body? Uh, anybody? <laughs> you can tell changes in the uh, weather based on that. So there are signs that people recognize as these very common indications of if you see this, uh, you know you're going to do this. My dad subscribes almost wholeheartedly to, in the winter months, if you see a sun dog around, around the sun, if you see that rainbow around the sun, you're going to get snow within the next three days. Like he just subscribes completely to, to those type of things. And so I've grown up with this idea, if you look, you grow up around farmers, you grow up in the areas, you, you look at these signs and you, and you draw conclusions from them. That's the key. You see something and you draw a conclusion. Verse 4 Jesus says, you can look at that, but you can't even interpret the signs of the times. Verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Okay, just a couple of things from those verses to, to pick out. Chapter 16, verse 1, notice Matthew's comment about how the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test Jesus they're not seeking a sign because they desire to believe in him. They're seeking him with this test, with the point of how do they trip him up, how do they oppose his ministry. So there's a seeking after the Lord in a way that is humble and you'd want to hear from him. This is seeking for a sign because they wanted to test him, they wanted to stop his ministry. 
So he gives them this response. And then you go there to verse 3. At the end of verse 3, Jesus tells them, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Now sometimes you'll hear signs of the times used in reference to Jesus' return, kind of like Andy preached about on, on Sunday morning. However, in Scripture, signs of the times, that particular phrase is never used in reference to Jesus' return. It's only used in references to recognizing Jesus' ministry. Now, does Jesus in different places give us syndications of signs of his return? Yeah, there, there are places that seem to point in that way. But when Jesus, in Scripture, when you get the phrase signs of the times, it's always about did you recognize the purpose of his coming, his ministry? Did you recognize who he was? Because let me try to say this in the, in the best way, and I think it'll come across right. If not, I'll back up and try again. But here's the deal. Sometimes, sometimes people get so caught up in signs of the times in an end times Jesus returns sort of way that they fail to ever acknowledge or deal with their own relationship with the Lord. Some people are more fascinated by Jesus' return than they are by Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And, and what Jesus seems to be dealing with is he's saying, make sure you understood why I've come. Make sure you understand the signs of the times, that the Messiah has come, and it matters that you respond to him. And then in that way, you're prepared for his return, which is important to prepare for his return. But it doesn't matter. You're not going to be ready for his return if you haven't acknowledged who he is and what he's come to do. And so he's dealing with this idea with, with the people here. And then in verse 4 he says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, needs a sign beyond what has already been given. No sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Well, the humorous irony here is that the sign of Jonah is going to come with Jesus' resurrection, but even then their hearts are not going to be prepared, um, most of them, to to respond. And so this is a sign that they're going to have to wait for. It's not Jesus has already given them plenty of signs of what it looks like for the kingdom of God to come. Their hearts are hard against him, and he says, you're going to get a sign. It's just not going to be anything like you ever expected, and it's going to happen at the time of the resurrection. And then you get this really, really interesting phrase at the end of verse 4. So he left them and departed. That's not just a geographical reference. This is going to be the last interaction, the last conflict that Jesus is going to have with the religious leaders outside of Jerusalem. So at this point in his ministry, he has this conflict with them, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees here, And then we're going to see Sunday morning, as we continue in chapter 16 this Sunday morning, how Jesus turns and he starts to move toward Jerusalem. And then, when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to have all kinds of debates and all kinds of opposition. But at this point, he's like, guys, I'm done with you. (laughs) I've got to go and do other things. And so it's kind of like, I've, I've tried to argue with you, I've tried to explain to you. Now he's done. He's going to leave them away, and he's going to go. And what he's going to do, and this is really interesting, from this point until he gets to Jerusalem in Matthew 21, he's going to focus his time on the disciples because he has to prepare the disciples for what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem because it's going to be so earth-shattering for them uh, that he needs to prepare them. So he's like, I don't have time to worry about the opponents. I've got to dedicate myself to the disciples right now. I'll deal with the opponents when we finally get to Jerusalem. That's kind of what's going on here in this idea. Now, verse 5. He's going to turn to his disciples, and he's going to start to to speak to them. 
When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. <laughs> well, of course they have. Like, what else did you expect uh, at this point, after dealing with the disciples up to this point? They have forgotten to bring any bread. Now, the question is, why have they forgotten to bring bread? Uh, are, they, are they just forgetful? Yeah, possibly. What's going on here? It could be that they're still operating under the directions that Jesus gave them in Matthew chapter 10 when he sent them out and said, hey, don't, don't take very much with you. In fact, you will need almost nothing when you get to a house, go in. And the, the disciples may still be operating off of this mentality, and so everywhere they go, they're just waiting for, for someone to provide. They, it could be happening in, in that way to them. Verse 6 there, Jesus says to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. <laughs> well, come on, guys. Like, uh, this is not what Jesus is referring to. They're thinking at a material level. They're worried about bread. Jesus is trying to teach them about the kingdom of God. All they can think about is bread. All Jesus can think about is I have to prepare these guys for what's going to happen when we get to Jerusalem. On your little note sheet, they're kind of like two-thirds the way down the front under the disciples and, and bread. Um, Jesus has already prepared them in Matthew chapter 6 for these type of indications. He's taught them to pray, and part of what the prayer he taught them was, give us this day our daily bread. Are they prepared to ask? Are they prepared to trust in Jesus and turn to him? Then, Matthew chapter 6, part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught them, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus is continuing to give them lessons where they have to live out what he taught them in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 8, Jesus, aware of what they were discussing, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Remember, that was a big idea in the parables chapter. Do you not understand? Do you not perceive what's going on here? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered then? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread, actual tangible bread? Instead, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood Big, big word right there. It's going to actually prepare for Peter's confession of, of Christ. But verse 12, Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Okay, a couple of things there. Jesus is telling them, If you knew who was with you, and if you could remember what I have done for you in the past, you would not be worried right now about bread, what you're going to eat, because you would know who was with you, and you would remember what I've done for you. I forget how we phrased it on the, on the note sheet here. They still don't realize fully 
who Jesus is, and they don't remember the significance of what Jesus has just done. Give us a chance to share a couple of uh, testimonies here if you're, if you're willing to speak uh, out loud about something, but here's, here's the lesson. Uh, Amanda and I just celebrated 15 years of, of marriage, and so we've got some years under our belt, but, but not, not a ton. But here's something we've learned over and over again. We'll get to a situation of life, and something difficult will come, and we'll start to semi-panic. How are we going to pay for that? How are we going to deal with this situation? How are we going to handle this situation? And then we have one of those moments where you look back to the past, and you think, God was faithful there, and he provided. God was faithful there, and he provided. God was faithful there, and he provided. The same God who was faithful there is the same God who's going to be faithful today and tomorrow and for all of eternity. And there's something about being able to remember, about being able to look back in life and see God's faithfulness and to remember who he is and what he's doing in our lives right now that doesn't always change the circumstances, but it definitely changes your perspective on those circumstances. And, and the feeling of anxiety can be taken away. The feeling of being overwhelmed can be taken away because you remember God was faithful there. He's going to be faithful here, and we can trust him because we know who he is. So here's my question for you. Do you have any stories about a time that you've got to, a time you got to in life where you're feeling overwhelmed, you're feeling anxious, you're coming up on a difficult situation, but you're able to look back and see God's faithfulness in the past, and, and that kind of carried you forward? Any stories about God's faithfulness in the past that you hold on to? Maybe things in your marriage, your family that you look back to that are kind of key markers of God's faithfulness to you? Yeah, go for it, Sam. Yeah. Yeah, you shared that in your, uh, in your sermon this summer. But uh, Stephen mentioned re- recovering from the 2013 tornado. Uh, their story, their testimony has multiple moments of just where God was, was faithful and provided exactly what you needed at the right time. And you guys, I, I'm sure you still find yourself drawing on that drawing on that experience constantly yeah any key moments in life yeah go for it Let me give you this. That way they can hear you. I want you to be able to share your story. This is a question. I don't know if I can reach it through here. Um, you want to try? You want to stand? Okay. Is this one coming through? There it goes. close to it okay well 20 years have gone by 
20 years of not using my, le my right side with the exception of holding a toothbrush and walking. The last, sorry, the last picture I found was Memorial Day in 1999 at my uncle, uh, uncle's house. We were so happy and we were newly wet. July 10th, 1999, I was at Lake Broken Bow on a sea when it occurred. I had a brain aneurysm. By God's design, there was, was under, sorry. By God's design, there was underwater maneuver training that day who happened to see me and happened to offer some assistance. They had all the right equipment on the boat. Paramedics were on the shore and they had called for a helicopter who was just flying down the street to a wreck that uh, they were unable to get to those, so they reverted to me. He flew me to Texarkana, where the surgeon went into the brain and discovered it was a massive artillery vascular malformation. After the surgeries, the doctor told my family to pray because they did not expect me to sur survive the night. I proved them wrong. I went from a wheelchair to a walker to a cane to nothing within about eight months. And also the eighth month, I started working under the disability program, SEA project, at Tinker Air Force Base. I am able to, uh, I am able to move without a device, got my driver's license reinstated, and figured out how to work again. Persistence is the key. You have to try and try and try until something works. Sorry. Okay, you have to try and try and try until something works. Um, there isn't anybody going to tell me I can't do something. I still mow the, the uh, I still mow and weed eat the yard, keep the house clean, and even figured out how to play pool with one hand. Mm -hmm. It would have, I would like to say it is easy, but I would be lying. Every time I get out of bed, I would hope that my brain would recognize the right side and function like it should and feel defeated when it does nothing, or does nothing moves. I, tr I was told by my physical therapist you can come in as long as you want to and see them, but until your brain recognizes that it is only using one side, it will probably do you no good. So rather, is these usage, I'm sorry, so whether is these usage or not, I will keep fighting the fight. That's all I can do. God saved me for a purpose, and if it was, it, if it is to show people that I was, I will praise God even though he didn't protect me from this malformation, I will tell them about how everybody was there at that time, at that moment, to keep me alive, and I will keep praising the Lord. Amen.
Thanks for sharing that. This is a great, great example of that. So that's the call, is to realize who the Lord is and, and to remember his faithfulness. And then when you remember in your position to move forward into whatever God is, is leading you to do, right there at the end of that, that section there, end of verse 11, Jesus tells them, tells his disciples, remember he's preparing his disciples for the ministry ahead, he tells them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, which the disciples then come to understand it's not the bread the Pharisees and Sadducees serve, it's the teaching. Um, now Jesus can use leaven in a positive way, like he does in Matthew 13, where he's talking about the kingdom of heaven being about this leaven that mixes its way in. You don't see it working, but it works and brings us great result. It can be a positive thing, but leaven can also in Scripture be a very negative thing, where it can be something toxic. This is the danger in a church. It's the danger in an organization. It can be the danger at your business, where when something or someone toxic gets into the business or the organization or the atmosphere, pretty soon that person, even if it's only one or two, can really start to just poison the water uh, pretty quickly. And so Jesus is concerned here that the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees will end up poisoning the water for the disciples, that, that they could be led astray, that they could be affected. Now the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? That's a very broad topic. We're trying to figure out what Jesus mentions right here, what he's talking about. Both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, both of them are bothered by the ministry of Jesus. They don't like the fact that Jesus is coming to change things. They don't like the fact that Jesus is coming claiming to bring the kingdom of God. They don't like that teaching that, that is happening. So it seems to have something to do with his teaching. Now what you have to know about the Pharisees and the Sadducees is it's not like they were similar groups. Uh, common uh, enemy makes strange bedfellows type of situation. So they don't have a lot in common other than they both can't stand Jesus. And so that brings them together at this point. On the back of your, your note sheet, I tried to give just a little bit of an overview of, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and see if we could identify kind of what Jesus is going for here. The key word, the key theme for both of these groups seems to be power and you could put pride in there and that would work as well they're trying to hold on to power they're prideful and the teachings of Jesus are trying to turn that upside down and they don't want to be turned upside down they're trying to hold on to their position uh, there's another p word position power pride uh, any of those will work for when you're describing these two these two groups together so who are the Pharisees their name probably relates back to the idea of being separated ones, being a group that was kind of pulled off to the side, a holy huddle. Uh, they developed as a group intent on preserving and obeying the law. This group grew out of the events surrounding the Maccabean Revolt. That's that historical piece where you're kind of around the year 167 B.C. and following that where the Jewish people are revolting and trying to gain their independence uh, and, and do, for a time, gain their independence. And so there's this strong national pride 
a lot of pride in being a Jewish person and how do you live that out in everyday life, this idea that's going on after the Maccabean Revolt. These oral traditions and interpretations of the law were developed and the Pharisees were distinguished by how they observed these purity laws and how they observed the law, the Torah, and all these teachings. There's some question about how much influence they had among the people. They had some degree among the people, influence among the people, the way Jesus is dealing with, but they're kind of this other group over here saying, if you really want to be religious, you're going to live this way. And they probably saw Jesus as a dangerous, radical, anti-law teacher and they were likely troubled by the claims he made about himself. Here's the thing with the Pharisees. They loved religious power and control. They loved religious power and control, and much of it had come to be built on man-made religions and traditions more than Jesus coming to fulfill the law of God. And so we have to think about this question of, are there times that we are more tied up with religious power and control than we are with the kingdom of God, where our religious power begins to go up here and we become less concerned about the things of God, and it's more how do we hold on to religious power, how do we hold on to religious control. That's kind of the Pharisees group. The Sadducees, they were a loose confederation of wealthy and powerful men, probably some priests from, from high up in society, who they took a secular, pragmatic view to life. They didn't have a religious. The Pharisees were the holy huddle. They were the super religious people. The Sadducees were the wealthy guys and, and the landowners, and they're trying to hold on to their secular power. They were more temple-centered than law-centered. That's a really good way to distinguish these two groups. The Pharisees were obsessed with the law. The Sadducees were obsessed with the temple and the money and the power that went with the temple. Which means that when the temple goes in AD 70, they, Sadducees go with it. But um, they supported military and economic expansion. Um, they rejected the resurrection, spiritual beings, scripture outside of the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible. They didn't believe that God had any impact on daily life. A God may exist, but that doesn't have anything to do with how I live now. I'm trying to gain as much power and influence and money as I can right now. So what do you not need? You don't need somebody showing up on the scene saying the kingdom of God has come and this is what it looks like to follow the kingdom of God and all of a sudden it's take up your cross and follow me, deny yourself. That would have been horrible for the, Pharisees, I mean for the Sadducees to hear because it's, taking, it's, it's hitting at their power. They probably saw Jesus as a destabilizing force for their power with Rome and they would have rejected and hated the ideas of God's kingdom coming in power any call to repentance, the teaching of resurrection, salvation, judgment beyond this life. The Sadducees, they loved their money, they loved their secular political power, and they were going to do anything it took to hold on to it. So then the question we have to ask ourselves is, when do we find ourselves in that situation? Where we find ourselves holding on to the things of this world more strongly than we do seeking after the things of God. Where are we seeking power in this world? Religious power, secular, worldly power, both of those are opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes to upend all of that power and say the only true power that really matters is God himself. And do you know him? Are you following him? Are you worshiping him? 
Now, what gets really, really toxic and really dangerous is when you start to mix religious power with political, secular, worldly power. Then you've got a really toxic situation on, on your hand. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is always going to upend that and say, no, 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 <laughs> there's one Lord. There's one Savior. There is one God who is worthy of our worship and our praise and our lives, and we give ourselves to him. And so what Jesus is doing with his disciples is they're about to head to Jerusalem on a very difficult journey. And he's going to tell them to deny themselves, to take up their cross, and to follow him. The thing that would get in the way of that is the teaching of the Pharisees and the teaching of the Sadducees. And so he has to separate his disciples away from that teaching because otherwise they're going to lose sight of what he's really calling them to do as his followers. So what we'll see this Sunday morning is what it looks like when Jesus is calling them to understand this path that they're about to, uh, they're about to head out on. All right, let's pray, and we'll, we'll wrap up. Father, thank you for your faithfulness, that we need to remember every day who you are and what you've done in our lives, God, the times that we've seen you show up in power and glory, those times that you sustain us day after day. God, let us not get caught up in the power of this world. Let us not get caught up in man-made religious power. God, we want to give ourselves to you and to your kingdom. And so as we continue through the Gospel of Matthew, understanding more of what that looks like, more of what it looks like to live a life that is focused on the cross, God, do that work in us individually. Do that work in us as a church. God, protect us from this leaven, this teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and let us live as part of your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. God bless you. Thanks for being here. Have a great night. And I'm reaching out. Nothing quite